Hello, STEM lovers, science dabblers, and everyone who just forgot to turn over after the last show. Welcome to Us and STEM with me, Ellie Bladen on CAMFM. Each show, I chat to a new guest scientist, put them under the microscope to dissect their work, investigate their life in science, and examine what makes them tick. Today, we'll be asking, why should we embrace beavers in the UK? How can you learn to face the audience on social media? And how do you write a nature book in a pandemic? This week's guest is the amazing zoologist and science communicator, Sophie Pavel. Sophie is campaign and communications coordinator for the UK NGO, The Beaver Trust. Alongside that work, she has starred in nature documentaries, including Beavers Without Borders and a range of films with the Back From The Brink conservation campaign. She is also a talented nature writer with work featured in the Metro and BBC Country File magazine. And she is currently writing her first book, Forget Me Not, which will be published by Bloomsbury next year. I caught up with her to chat about how she got into science communication, how she manages to make a successful career in such a competitive industry, and why she keeps going for 300 mile long walks. I am so happy to welcome Sophie Pavel to the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Sophie. Where are you talking oh, to me pleasure. from now? I am talking to you from my study in a little village just outside of Exeter in Devon. Oh, sounds lovely. I don't think I've had anyone calling from Devon yet, so I'm going to add that as a tick. Oh, good. (laughs) Hurrah. You are a zoologist, author, wildlife presenter, environmental advocate. Is that a fair summary? Gosh, that sounds very flattering. Uh, I suppose so. I've done a few bits in all of those categories, I suppose. (laughs) Basically, you're pretty darn happy outdoors. Have you always been passionate about nature or is it something that's kind of grown over time? It's a tricky, well, it's not tricky at all, really. It's, it's just not very interesting. I mean, I, I never really had like an epiphany of, oh my gosh, being outside and being amongst wildlife and nature is something that I must do and it's my calling. I didn't have that at all. It's more, I think, that I've just been very lucky to have two very outdoorsy, adventurous parents. Both my parents are in the military, so being adventurous and outdoorsy I think was just part of them and they wanted it to be part of us as well and just I didn't really realise until kind of got to uni I went to Bristol University and that's kind of as much of a city as I'd like to live in I think like I love it it's so much fun but it's still got that slight west country vibe which I really like and perhaps need as well for my sanity (laughs) you were never one of these who's going to move straight to London after uni then no gosh no like I love going to London to visit but I think three days is my maximum I just find cities quite stressful and I think it's only when I got older that I sort of reflected on and looked back and think actually nature and wildlife has formed such a part of who I am that I struggle without it and I think it's just luck of the draw with the things I did growing up and it was all local it was all UK based yeah and then I I just while being outside and being around nature and trying to join the dots has just been a, a hobby and an interest and I'm not a naturalist I hardly know what I'm looking at most of the time which I think you know a lot of people perhaps relate to you don't sort of learn that 
kind of stuff in zoology you learn about the sort of bigger picture and the bigger questions and oh, the links between stuff yes yeah, just kind of something I've enjoyed no that's very relatable actually because often you you see people who have made it as you know presenters you know big names and and they often have this kind of incredible story where they were identifying things from age three <laughs> and it's kind of nice to know that not everyone who goes into it is like that it can come from sort of just a passion and you know a general inspiration for the natural world yeah yeah no totally it's um it's just an interest of mine and I just really enjoy learning but I don't sort of I've never been like a collector of outdoor trinkets like I you know if I find a beautiful shell or a feather or something I might bring it home currently my bookmark is a beaver chip from a Nord tree um from oh. Napdale in Scotland that's a really special trinket of mine but I've never been a collector I find ID quite difficult and sometimes when I find things difficult to understand I get bored so I move on so I think that's my catch-22 a little bit. <laughs> I like that um, I think that's incredibly comforting and relatable because to be honest I'm not a I'm not a big collector either you know I I find birdsong difficult I love listening so to I. it but it's difficult so <laughs> yeah I think I think there's a lot to be said for things just remaining an interest and not having to sort of put yourself under pressure to know every single thing about it and to reel off fact after fact after fact and a lot of people get a real kick out of that and it's important to them but I personally just kind of a very shallow broad makes me feel good therefore I will get out and do it but I won't sort of I also want to I have lots of other interests as well (laughs) yeah I love that I think that's great and at what point for you did it turn from being an interest to being something that you wanted to you know study scientifically at university I think it was just again being encouraged by my parents to pursue what we were interested in versus what we thought might get us a job at the end instead of you know vocational pressure it was just all about what are we good at and what we're interested in. I've always been the kind of person where if the thing doesn't move or breathe or have cells, I really struggle to understand it. Mm. Um, So I knew that kind of natural sciences was sort of my thing and I found maths really difficult. So chemistry wasn't really an option or physics. (laughs) So it was just just an interest. I loved animals. I thought a lot about um, doing veterinary medicine. So zoology was a pathway into that. So that was always a potential at that stage. But it was just, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Still don't really know, but have a bit more of an idea. Didn't know what I was good at. So I just thought, you know, maybe if I'm doing what I'm interested in, I'll find out what I'm good at further down the line. I mean, that definitely sounds like a good approach and it's working for you so far. So you you got a first class degree, I think I'm right in saying, in zoology. Yeah. So clearly you could have gone into academia if you'd wanted to. Was it something that you ever considered? Um, it's a good question. I think I don't think I'm naturally academic. And that probably sounds really pious, having got a first class degree. But I worked so hard for that. And it's more that I'm not I don't think I'm naturally knowledgeable. I have to really put in the time. And a lot of the time, the exams in the degree were were sort of how much can you remember and how many papers can you reel off? Uh, I'm sure you can relate. It's (laughs) It's just so dense, the amount of knowledge that you need. And so I found that quite difficult. So I had to really work hard for it, where there were some students in my class who just knew it just off the cuff and they were just really gifted in that. But I think I, I think that when I started to get good feedback and things, I thought, oh, maybe this is something I'd enjoy. But I found the lab quite difficult. I found statistics quite difficult. And I think I would need a lot of help from a supervisor and fellow students if I were to make it through. But I have thought occasionally about a PhD, but I think I just really enjoy working and I feel like I am, I'm, I'm 
offering more value at the moment in you know being part of the workforce and I loved doing a master's and I think that was a perfect kind of balance between doing a bit more academia but then also getting into work quickly. Yeah 100% and so your master's was science communication it was a very decisive step towards the career you have now so why did you decide to take that particular master's? It was it was a random one, really, because at the time I had accepted a master's in global wildlife health and conservation at the vet school in Bristol. Mm. So I thought I was all set and ready to go. And then um, I was just on my laptop one evening surfing the Internet and doing whatever and came across this master's and it was master's in science communication. I think they were advertising it some, and I saw it and I thought, oh, what is science communication? Because we never really, it seems weird that it was a kind of a new term, but it was, it wasn't really bashed around that much at that time. And this was what, in 2016 or 2017, I think, spring 2017. So I looked at it and then it just kind of really reached out to me in terms of, it was everything that I didn't have in my undergrad, where it's small cohorts, lots of support and interaction with the academics, really vocational, really practical, really open to creativity. And I felt that it was a chance for me to kind of develop my creativity that I perhaps didn't have a chance to in my undergrad. And I'm naturally quite a creative person. And as we know now, science and arts go really well together and need to be encouraged. And so we got taught things like TV and radio, podcasting, scientific writing, how to speak publicly, all of these sorts of stuff, really useful skills. And I thought actually at the end of zoology, I felt sort of knowledgeable in a very shallow sense of a lot of topics, but not really good at any one of them. And I thought I can either go down a really narrow route and be really good at one very small niche of that, or I can help try and develop skills that might be beneficial in any job. And public speaking and writing and everything is beneficial in any job, whether it's in finance or law or science communication, it is all valuable skills. So it, it was just something that so happened to be a growing industry. And, you know, now when we need as many people as possible to be communicating the truth and to be a, a, an effective middleman between science and the public. I definitely lucked out in terms of finding an industry that is in demand. It's really interesting what you're saying about science communication becoming more prevalent since you did your master's. When you were doing your undergrad, did you do outreach? It just it wasn't termed like that. Or do you think actually it was just not happening as much around you? I think it's a mixture of both, actually. At the end of our second year, we all had to do a field course and it ranged from going to Costa Rica to Portugal to Lundy and staying in Bristol and doing genetic stuff. And one of the options was public engagement in science. And it was all random allocations. So everyone, of course, put Costa Rica and Portugal and all the abroad ones on top of their list. And I got public engagement with science. I was like, great, everyone else goes to Costa Rica and I get to stay in Bristol for two weeks and talk <laughs> to school kids. But actually it was a blast. And you know, it helped that a couple of my best mates were on there as well. But um, it was so not what I was expecting in terms of I didn't realize how enjoyable it is to be able to relay what you're passionate about to other people who are curious and kind of want to know about it but aren't really sure what to do with that curiosity and you're kind of there to sort of help them towards it and I enjoyed the challenge of reading a piece of scientific research and we did this a lot in the masters um, that's really complicated and then learning how to pick out the key elements of it to relay in a way that you know your ordinary average joe might understand and gain some insight into it that they might not have done before 
and I got you know I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed working with people and I didn't realize that you could have such a kind of almost a community feel and a good connection with people using science as that consistent narrative um, but in a way that wasn't always just either working in a lab or being a teacher or the, the sort of classic things that that we're taught in school that you can do with science. Yeah and it's interesting coming at it as a PhD student it's mm. all these things which feels to me as well like it's getting increasingly appreciated it used to be mm. that your role as a researcher was to sit in the lab and what's becoming more and more obvious is if you're doing something really applied there is a point to you being in the lab doing your work but a lot of what mm. people do isn't actually applied so what's the point unless we can actually talk to people about it and explain what exactly. we do and that's a completely exactly. different set of skills you know we need professionals in science communication to do that kind of work it's really valuable industry talking about the industry itself you know now I'm sure you've got projects left right and center and I'd love to know what your experience has been of, of working in in this kind of industry it must be very competitive and presumably building a reputation for yourself is key how did you manage to go from a position of being fresh out of uni to actually managing to get enough work to make a living gosh well it's not easy it has been quite a journey and I do feel very lucky that I I think it would have been a totally different story had I not had the blessing I guess of being able to live at home whilst I was building my career and have the support of my parents and to pay far less rent than I ever would have had to if I was you know living on living independently and trying to do it that way so it was it was hard and you know I'm I'm naturally quite a shy person and I know that doesn't come across that way on social media you're almost kind of two different people in a way and you sort of I sort of put on my professional hat and think right I've got to be this Sophie today but actually the sort of sounds really cliche and gross but the but the Sophie at uni was kind of like okay so it seems like people like to know the person behind the voice and the, the person behind the writing and behind the sort of I don't know picture or whatever and part of my master's dissertation was exploring this very thing how can we translate science to the public using social media and basically adhering to the rules and standards of social media, which is unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, a lot of face, a lot of the person's personality. And I, and I found that really difficult. I found it really weird, you know, going from living a very private life to suddenly being, why on earth would someone care? Like, what I'm up to or what I think or what where I've been for a walk you know it's just it to me it just seemed ridiculous and in many ways it still does but it was just a lot of trial and error and a lot of getting out of my comfort zone an awful lot of networking and um just trying to make good connections with people and maintaining those connections a lot of work experience um, in between. I was working two retail jobs at the time and I only just stopped doing that when I got my Beaver Trust job uh, in spring last year. So it was a lot of juggling, you know, trying to make some money to sort of live and facilitate and then, you know, trying to get a portfolio together. So mm. there's a lot of perseverance, you know, there's been many, many tears, many fails, epic fails. Um, but it's fiercely competitive. And I think the main thing that I would suggest is that a lot of people um, think that, and it can be quite isolating if you're not careful um, in terms of, you know, you feel like you're on your own. Oh, I've got to develop my voice and I've got to find who I am and all that crap. You, you know, you've got to, I think, 
realize actually there are lots of people who have the same passions and motivations as you in terms of lots of people want to communicate science better so that more people get on board with what's going on so I think collaboration and teaming up with like-minded people to get a bigger voice and a bigger platform I think is so underestimated and it's so so important um, and it, you know there's a brilliant science communication community now on social media as you know and it's really valuable I think in putting like-minded heads together and sharing creativity and sort of bouncing off each other as well so yeah it's 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 a you know no day is the same which is mainly good but it's kind of a you know it's a journey and it is hard and it takes a lot of sort of determination and uh, you know you work really weird hours sometimes I found it quite difficult to describe what I do and I still find that a really big hurdle and people say what are you what do you do what's your job and I think well science communicator just sounds so like like people be like yeah and it's just kind of like I don't know if it's like a societal thing where you're a confidence thing but you know there's a lot of learning that goes on (laughs) in the process you've mentioned the community because it is such a competitive industry is it really a sense of community do you get difficult competition between people at the same career stage It depends. I think there is a fine balance between being inspired by someone's work and and then putting your own spin on it and then, you know, kind of directly sort of taking a bit, maybe a bit too much inspiration from it. It's it, it is hard. And I think the main thing is just to keep going back to why you came to this space in the first place. I think on the whole, 99% of people will be really supportive and it's a wonderful space to be in and very uplifting but you know there are only so many cool projects going on and a lot of people wanting to be involved in them so it's I think it's more just staying true to yourself and identifying your skill set but not letting the competitive nature of the industry put you off because you know we need as many people as possible in this space and everybody has got something to bring so I think it's just um, you know if you're the old saying is so true if you're really passionate about something you will get there and it's just a little bit of fortitude that is helpful (laughs) no I love that because like you said there is a great community sometimes you you look on and the community is so great that if you're someone who is naturally shy you know like you are and like I am myself you kind of think oh how can I even start so how can I penetrate that yeah exactly but it's nice to hear you know you're saying how, how did you get over that that feeling of being shy and feeling like why would someone care if I put out my daily walk or whatever like do you have any tips for dealing with that um I think it's just practice I think it's just it just feels a really weird thing to do at first and I think the more you do it the more you realize actually the way society is now it's very normal to do that it's very normal to walk along the street talking to your phone and I think, you know, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons and your heart's in the right place and you're doing it with a wider view to perhaps, you know, spread awareness of of something and and, and to help more people be on board with it and to kind of normalise it in a way, I think that's, you know, it's a good thing. So I think just practice is key. Find out what works. I think if you're not enjoying it and the more you do it, the less you enjoy it, that's a sign that perhaps it's not for you. So I wouldn't force it as well. I think that's really valuable. I think it's so important. Same with work experience. It's it's almost more valuable for it to be a placement that tells you that that's not for you than for it to be a placement that confirms your interest in it. So much. And I've had so many like, you know, students say to me they're worried about, you know, what to go into next. And some of the most useful things for me have been things I didn't like. So I totally yeah. agree with you there. 
Yeah, yeah, it takes the pressure off a little bit. It can be so overwhelming because there are so many different genres within science communication that can be very kind of like, oh my gosh, I just want to do everything. I should be, I should be a generalist. I should do absolutely everything, but just, just do what you enjoy. And it will show through if you're, you know, being a verbal or a written communicator, your interest in that subject will carry your words for you in a way. So I was having a little peek through your YouTube and you've done so many different projects. It's amazing. Oh was <laughs> that was a, that was a compliment. I was enjoying it. No, what, the what, dreaded you, archive. Oh, they always haunt us. No, it was it was very it was very fun to watch. What would you say has been the most exciting job of your career so far? Oh, one of the ones I think I'm most proud of that is a completed project has been to film um, Beavers Without Borders, which is our short documentary for Beaver Trust that came out in November last year that we filmed during the pandemic, safely of course, but it was a, a bit of a hurdle to do that. And just the people who we got to work with on that film and the story means a lot to me personally in terms of the story of beavers and and just and and just the reception that the film got in terms of you know beavers are a very contentious topic shall we say at the moment and so to have it positively received and to be winning awards and things is just crazy and means so much to the whole team so I think that I learned so much doing that and so I think that's that's something I'm really you know I'll, I'll carry with me for whatever I do next. Yeah so that brings us on to one of your your big projects at the moment with the Beaver Trust so what is your role with them at the moment? So I am campaigns and communications coordinator. So I work with the director of communications to basically get beavers out there and to help educate and spread awareness. There's a lot of myths that need busting with beavers. Beavers do not eat fish. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot of work to be done. So it's a really exciting point. It's a very young charity. Beaver Trust is barely one year old and we have tried to break the very difficult uh, seal into the big environmental NGO world which is quite daunting and intimidating on a whole nother scale because there are lots of charities who've been doing some of what we're doing for for many many years and been doing it very very well indeed so it's been a really exciting completely crazy process but there's a lot of work to be done still because beavers of course in England still need to be protected and legally recognized as a native mammal so there's a it's it's really filled right up until I started with Beaver Trust I was feeling very despondent I'd been applying to count I've forgotten how many jobs I'd applied and interviewed for that were just straight up assistant communication roles in charities and things and I just wasn't getting them and I didn't know what else I needed how much more experience I needed you know free work experience before someone would recognize I could maybe do a good job so it came at a good time and it's kind of filled my hunger for working in a team which I really wanted to do I was feeling a little bit bored of working on my own all the time and it filled my need to feel like I was doing something that was making a difference in a slightly more meaningful way so yeah it's it's a really exciting job And is beaver reintroduction something that's been on your radar for a while then? Yeah, so I live um, really near the River Otter um, in East Devon, which is where the River Otter beaver trial happened. So that was a five-year study where the government was like, right, if you can prove to us that beavers are useful and worthwhile, prove it with science, we will let them stay. 
And so it was the first trial of its kind in England. Beavers had been gone for 400 years. So it was really exciting, a uh, very pioneering study. Um, so I've been following that trial for five or six years and you know, got to know the project managers and things and did a little radio project for my masters on it and, thing, and things like that. And then this August, they became the first wild, officially wild population of beavers in England. So it's just been a wonderful sort of story of beavers right on my doorstep. And there's something really special about having a mammal coming back after a long period of ab absence, you know, so close to home and being able to sort of see it in its wild environment, to see its field signs and things it was just really exciting. And yeah, I think it, it kind of made sense of a lot of my degree for me in a way, and it contextualised a lot of it. So yeah. I like beavers. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see a beaver. Otters and beavers, I think, are one of the things that I just... Oh, they're very special animals, aren't they? Because, you know, they're in a lot of literature and we've got... They're, they're very charismatic and I think they sort of add a bit of magic to the river that we, we want to see. Mm, but yeah, come definitely. see beavers any time when, co when coronavirus is a bit better. Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so as well as your work for the Viva Trust, you're currently writing your first book. Congratulations. That's that's really exciting. So Thank your book you. is due out next year and it follows mm. you traveling the length and breadth of the UK to discovered endangered species. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much that. So it's lots of separate little trips, 10 separate trips, which explore high to low documenting a journey of me going to see 10 species slash habitats which I believe are overlooked but also very threatened and vulnerable to climate change so it's kind of a non-fiction narrative that explores some of the most special places that we have here in the UK and kind of encouraging us to sort of make the effort to go find and save these creatures before they might go. And is that something that's been affected by lockdown did you manage to get all these trips in first? Well Good question, because I have three left to go and I've mm. got to hand in the manuscript in July. So COVID has been a very, as with everything, unexpected curveball. And fortunately, I did get a really good chunk done in the summer when restrictions were relaxed. But because a lot of these places are very remote and I've got a permission letter from the publishers to, to travel still, it's kind of been OK. It has made a lot because a lot all the travel for this book is low carbon so with a sort of side plot I guess of trying to make us more aware of our travel choices and our impact on the environment because otherwise it'd be a very indulgent for me to just go and have endless road trips <laughs> to go and see these species and then say oh our carbon footprint's horrendous and I'm contributing to it directly so all the travel was public transport which was really fun but quite stressful this year so there there's an added sort of undercurrent there but in a way, it's given me something else to talk about because of the pandemic being largely a result of perhaps our misuse of the land. Cheers, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> you're finding a silver lining there. Exactly, I'm trying. <laughs> so, I mean, you're not a stranger to getting around on your own steam anyway. You've done a couple of high profile 300 mile walks, I believe, in the UK. So one mm. was part of your master's and one was with Hannah Stitfall for the Wildlife Trust. I know some people yeah. must think you're mad at doing this kind of yeah. thing. You know, yeah, hey, weather, just... not predictable. Put me through what it's like doing one of these walks. Like, is it fun the whole way? Do you have times when you're just regretting your life choices? I should just add a disclaimer that the first one was, was a part of my master's, but is not a part of the course 
for UE. So it's not it's not part of the curriculum. It was part of my research project, although it would be fun if it was part of the course. But I'm a bit weird in that I really like hiking. And I like hiking, you know, for a couple of hours on the coast path on a Sunday, but I really like pushing myself physically. And I don't really know where that came from, but we did a lot of hiking holidays, you know, like two week treks and stuff growing up. And I think I just got a real appetite for it. And I loved the sort of feeling of going on a journey and just living out of a backpack and the simplicity of it. So weirdly and very boringly for you, I'm afraid, I actually, I loved every single minute of both. And they were both very different. The first one was on my own. And it was the first adventure I'd ever done on my own. And I was surprised by how much I loved it. And I never felt lonely. And I just felt so kind of content and sort of in my element. And obviously there was some physically very difficult parts, but it's a very short term pain. And then you always feel your satisfaction when you've, when you've completed it. And then the second one with Hannah, I mean, we just, we're like brother and sister, really. We just, it was just so much fun. And obviously there were tears. We squeezed 300 miles into two weeks, whereas my first one, I did it in three. So we were walking nearly a marathon a day and that was tough. And Hannah had horrific blisters, but it's a different kind of pain. You know, I'd give anything to do that right now to sort of just be outside and be in the elements and have the unpredictability and be at the sort of mercy of, of the weather. It's, it's, you know, just a, a real, it's a really special time. And we just felt so lucky to be able to have the, the luxury of that time mm to be able to explore some of the most beautiful parts of our country uh, by foot, which is a very special, completely unique mode of travel. So highly recommend if you ever have a couple of weeks to do the Southwest Coast Path and just see how far you get, because it's just so, so special. And I would do it again and again a million times over. Um, You're you're getting me enthused now. I might, (laughs) this is an idea, if we're allowed to travel in the country this summer, but not out... Uh, yeah. The coast path. Even if you just do it over like a weekend or just see how far you go or pick an A to B. My next one I really want to do one day is the Wild Atlantic Way on the west coast of Ireland. That looks Ooh. amazing. Sounds lovely. Okay, so I'll yeah. look forward to you documenting that on social media then. <laughs> <laughs> so as well as your book, you've written for popular science magazines and newspapers. Did you always think you'd ultimately end up writing a book? Uh, no. <laughs> um that was never I think writing a book is just something that you think oh well you've got to be a certain sort of person to be able to do that or you've got to have reached a certain point in your career to be able to do that and have a certain level of authority and esteem so I never ever thought I'd get to that point I really I didn't ever sort of see myself as a writer I always enjoyed writing and I did English literature and language at a level and I didn't realise how useful a skill it is to be able to write well in science, which is not really taught at school, not my school anyway, which was a science school. So no, I didn't. It was it was just kind of a surprise. I, I wrote an article in the Metro and then I got contacted by a publisher to talk about books, which I sort of fell off my chair. And then it sort of went from there and sort of evolved and still don't really know what I'm doing and still terrified. <laughs> It's amazing. So you didn't actually seek that out. You got sought out by someone else. What a great story. I suppose. Yeah, it, it was it was a very odd thing. And I sort of said, are you sure you've emailed the right person? <laughs> are you sure this is as sure as this article that you want to talk about? But no, so I just feel very, very lucky. And I think there's we're in a really special time now in science with all these different voices coming out and 
I think young people having a much more respect in that area. I mean, look at Dara. And if you know Dara McAnulty. Yes. Yes. Um, Diary of a Young Naturalist has just been a phenomenal achievement what he's done there. And Myra's Craig, who is going to write her book called Bird Girl and Bella Lack, all of these really strong young voices who are finally being given the platform that they, you know, that they need to say what they need to say. So I think lots of people have said that the last few years have been the golden age of nature writing because A, people are wanting it because there's a lot of things that they want to escape from in the real world. And B, it's, you know, giving the natural world more of an authority in terms of the fact that we need to pay it more attention. So, yeah, it's a really exciting time and I feel incredibly lucky and slightly burdened with the responsibility but you know it's it's a fun process oh that's amazing now I don't want to take it too much of your time but I do usually finish by doing a quick fire round so do you feel up for that yes I do (laughs) you don't have to worry about how quick you're being I just like to give it a title so (laughs) what's the best piece of life advice you've been given oh um you do you what did you want to be when you were little a pilot oh can I deconstruct that one what (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's because um my brother and I were born in America and so we came over to the UK on a plane I think I loved that idea and then I also just loved the idea of flying a fast jet plane Mm -hmm. and just being like you know really acrobatic in the air very cool I don't think I'd be a very good pilot (laughs) (laughs) okay well there's a potential career option you know somewhere maybe I think you've got to be good at maths though which I'm definitely not so (laughs) what is something we probably don't know about you I used to have jet black hair when I was born I was born with jet black hair who inspires you uh my parents if you weren't a science communicator what would you be doing oh maybe um I'd quite like to be a lawyer because I like arguing. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> what do you love most about your job? Uh, the people I work with. And if anyone wanted to hear more about you, where should they look you up on the internet? Oh, gosh. Probably Instagram is the one I, I spend most time on. At Sophie Paths. Still have my 12-year-old sounding name. <laughs> <laughs> was that not your current one? I thought that was a really cool nickname. I liked Sophie Paths. <laughs> Well, I was called Pavs all the way through my degree and it kind of just stuck. And that's when I started Instagram was when I was in like second, first or second year. So it just sort of stuck. Uh-huh. Um, well, I think it's very catchy. So that counts. So if people thanks. want to follow you at Sophie Pavs. <laughs> thank you. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Sophie, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight to talk to thank you. Thank you and for having me. I look forward to following you some more on Instagram. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. That was Sophie Pavel, zoologist and science communicator, currently based at the Beaver Trust. I really would like to thank Sophie again for our chat. She definitely has words of wisdom for any aspiring science communicator and I just can't wait to grab a copy of her book next year. Well, that's all we've got time for today, but we'll be back in two weeks when I'll be interviewing Jack Ashby, who is the Assistant Director of the Museum of Zoology at the University of Cambridge, as well as the author of Animal Kingdom and Natural History in 100 Objects, and of course, an expert on all things related to Australian mammals. If you want brilliant facts about platypuses, alongside a discussion of why we need to decolonise natural history exhibits, then it's definitely an episode to come back for. If you've got any comments about today's show, you want to request a guest for a future episode, or, you know, you just want to say hey, then do get in touch with me. You can follow me on Twitter, at Eleanor underscore Bladen, on Instagram, at Ellie underscore Bladen, 
or you can email me at usandstem at gmail.com. Just remember that STEM is spelt with two M's. We don't want to leave those medics out. I really do love getting your emails, so please do send them my way. In the meantime, have a great couple of weeks and stay curious.